Hello and welcome to Series 7, Episode 7 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. I hope that whenever you're listening to this, you are having a good week. I first wanted to thank so many of you that got in touch after Kadif's episode last week. It seemed that it really resonated with so many of you, so I am delighted about that. Also, so many of you have been to my tour shows. It has been wonderful to meet people after the show, and it has been very special. The kind words that you have said about this podcast really does mean the world to me. So thank you so, so much. I also, for the first time in ages, had a look. I had to find the podcast to find out what number we were at. Classic me. And I went on the Apple podcast page on my computer. And there's lots of lovely ratings and reviews. I really appreciate that. And it really helps people find the show. So if you're enjoying it and you've got five minutes, if you could leave a little review, a little five stars, that would be brilliant because the more people that listen to it means the more advertising we can get and the more episodes I can make, the more studios I can book. So if you do love it, I would really, really appreciate that. I've got a brilliant episode for you today. Natasha Devon, she is a writer, she is a journalist, she is a public speaker, she has a show on LBC. We had a really interesting conversation about sexuality, about bisexuality, about being part of the LGBTQIA community. I do need to put out a brief mention though. We do talk about eating disorders, we talk about anxiety, we talk about sort of crippling anxiety at one point. So if that's something that you feel like you're not in a place to listen to today, maybe this isn't the episode for you. Maybe have a little break. But if you are ready, then I think you're going to really enjoy it. Natasha's story is actually something that a lot of people have asked for more content of people like her. So I'm really pleased that I get to share this episode with you. Okay. But before that, as always, we have some listener emails. This is a short and sweet one, but I just wanted to share it. Hello. I wanted to say I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen to it all the way through discovering my identity to coming out to my parents. And I'm eternally grateful for the chats you've had with your guests. They are a beacon of light amongst the vitriol in the world these days. I was wondering if you could get Mark Gatiss on the podcast. That is a great idea. I'm going to reach out to him today. I'm a big fan of his work all the way from League of Gentlemen. I've found interviews discussing the top of experience as a gay man, extremely moving and relatable. Many, many thanks. And that's from Annabelle. You're absolutely right. Here's a great suggestion. I'm going to reach out and uh, let's see. Let's see if we can get him on the show. Um, Often people really want to do the show, but they don't have the time or they're really busy or they're back to back with work and they haven't got the sort of space to be able to do it. But I'll reach out and I'll see what we can do. But thank you for the kind words that you said about podcasts. And I'm pleased that I was, well, not me, but this show was there all the way through that, that journey for you. Okay, let's have another one. Hi there, Susie. Thank you so much for your brilliant podcast. I discovered it in the summer of 2022 and then proceeded to listen to the entire back catalogue. As many of your listeners have done, your podcast found me at a time when I really needed it. And I'm so grateful to you, the guests and all the listeners for sharing their stories. I also came to see your show in Bridport with some friends. Yes, the gig where someone kept chatting in the audience. How rude. That was rude. But I felt too shy to say hi at the end. This is a very delayed email of gratitude as each week I listen and think about emailing in and then can't find the right words to explain my story. So I think this may be long and rambly. Sorry in advance. My dating history is brief. I was educated entirely under section 28, so didn't ever consider the idea of being bi or pansexual until recently. I was attracted to men as a teenager and never thought to question my sexuality any further. I had some excellent intense female friendships throughout my life, but I've always dated men. I was in a straight relationship for most of my 20s, and soon after that breakup, I started dating my current boyfriend. We are now approaching the 10-year mark. I always assumed I was an active ally to the LGBTQIA plus community, but at 37, something shifted in me, and suddenly I felt really uncomfortable with my straight identity. It didn't feel right, and there was a combination of events which led me to feel really stressed out and guilty about hiding my bisexuality from my partner, my friends, and from myself. I would describe it as holding all the puzzle pieces in my hands for years, but refusing to look at them clearly. It somehow didn't feel real to me to just know, and I felt so much sadness about this. I read a book lent to me by a queer friend who, unprompted, said they thought I should read it. The book is all about a woman my age suddenly meeting someone and realising she was bisexual. She leaves her husband to start a new life with her girlfriend as she chooses to live her authenticity in the space of many obstacles. The book honestly terrified me as I felt like I was being outed somehow. 
I also read it whilst I had COVID and isolating in a room in my house. Note to self, do not isolate and then rethink all of your life choices. I'm super lucky to be working as a lecturer at a university doing my dream job, spending my days with inspired young people studying an art subject. Several of my students have come out to me in tutorials, for which I feel incredibly grateful for. They use me to test out how they're going to share this with friends and family. The journey of one of my students really resonated with me. I was thrilled to see them come out to friends and start loving and living their life. During these conversations, I wanted to say, everything you're thinking is how I feel too. But it was too new for me and not helpful to the student at the time. I realised I was feeling jealous of my students being in their early 20s and being able to explore their sexuality in a time when, for the most part, conversations can be open and inclusive of all sexualities. I hope I'm able to tell my students once they graduate just how important those conversations were for me. I decided to talk to my boyfriend, who was really generous and open with me. There were a stressful few months while we discussed what it might mean for our relationship, whether we were breaking up And for us both, there was a concern that I was somehow biding my time in this relationship until I had the opportunity to leave and explore my bisexuality. It's been tough, but so important for our relationship, which feels stronger as a result. I can be myself entirely with him. And for now, that's all I want. Jess Fosterkew's episode completely resonated with me, and I think I've listened to it about four times and cried throughout. I've shared with my closest friends, which feel great, and they were supportive and allowed me to talk through my feelings at length. I feel seen and supported, but I still undermine myself when questioning whether I can really be bi with zero actual experience of queer relationships. I was really scared that by telling people, they would question this too. But so far, that's just my brain when I'm feeling less confident. One of my friends lovingly said that I was a baby queer, which is a term I'm enjoying and embracing. Sophie Hagen's episode made me feel really seen and heard and I thank you for bringing these stories to us. Okay that's it for now. I'm happy if you read out this story on the podcast but please don't use my name. Maybe say baby queer. The sixth member of the Spice Girls? Okay bye 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 bye. Thank you so much for that email and I think that fits really into the conversation that I have today with Natasha. I... I'm so pleased that the podcast has helped you along the way. It's so interesting, Jess's podcast, my dear, dear friend Jess, who I love, that comes up again and again and again in conversations. It seems that it's resonated with so many people and been so helpful for so many people. So thank you, Jess, if she's listening, for for being so beautiful and open on that episode. And thank you for sharing your story with me. And good luck on your journey. Okay. Let's get to today's conversation with Natasha. I loved this episode. Oh, before we do, I need to say, I would love more emails. I'm getting emails in every week, but I would love to have more. We used to get loads and loads and loads, and we're still getting the same listenership, but fewer emails. So if you've been thinking for ages, I really want to send in my story, but I haven't found time to, or, oh God, I don't know that I'm that good at writing. I worry about sending it in. Don't worry. Oh, or if you make spelling mistakes, don't worry. I make loads of spelling mistakes. I can just read it. It's fine. The email is hello at Get in touch with me, share your story, and you can always be anonymous if you would prefer to, like baby queer. Okay, let's get to that conversation with Natasha. I hope that you enjoy this as much as I did. Oh, listener, I am very excited to share today's conversation with you. I'm about to have a chat with Natasha Devon, MBE, who is a writer, presenter and activist. Now, you might know her from her weekly LBC show, where she's smart, caring, honest, intelligent, having conversations about some of the biggest issue that face us in today's society. She also writes for a number of publications, including The Guardian and Grazia and books. She's written Mind Manual, A Beginner's Guide to Mental Health. Yes, you can ace school without losing losing your mind and her debut novel Toxic was published in July. She is also founder of the Mental Health Media Charter which scrutinizes the way media reports on mental health. I mean, I think we can all agree very important indeed. She also tours schools and universities and events across the world delivering talks on mental health body image, gender and equality. And I'm delighted that she's taken an hour out of her day to chat to me today. Hello Natasha. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. I never know how to feel when people mention the MBE thing. I'm not sure how I feel about it. Like, right, okay. When I got it in 2015, I think I rightly judged that it would open doors for me. But mm-hmm, now it's sure. 20, it's 2022 and I'm like, there's British Empire after my name, you know? 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I've got friends that have MBEs that I think have similar relationships, but also it's the type of thing where you're like, you want to tell your mum that you've got an MBE. <laughs> like it's hard to say, like, do you know what I mean? Like it's hard to say no to something that feels so steeped in history. Some of the history is dreadful, yes, but it's also a way that people sort of recognise brilliant work that people have done. I had a thing in a school the other day where this um, sixth form boy came up to me after I'd done a presentation and he went, about the MBE thing, and I just <laughs> launched into this massive explanation of why I took it and, you know, how few women get one and how, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it did open doors for me and it got me into the right rooms and I'm part of a campaign to try and change the name to British Excellence as well. And then I, I finished the spiel yes. and he goes to me um no no I, I just wondered what you got it for <laughs> and I was like oh, oh. <laughs> it's sweet that he cared yes <laughs> and I think I, I read a thing about people t- trying to change it to British excellence I think Annie Lennox maybe shared a thing about it but that makes perfect sense they need to do that they totally need to do that and I feel that they will I mean I don't know how much longer the honours can go on for to be honest with all the kind of scandals over people buying them buying them yeah 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 yeah. it's important that we all know that Natasha didn't buy hers no just (laughs) (laughs) I don't have that sort of cash (laughs) (laughs) you got it for services to young people that's right right? yeah yeah so we sometimes sort of do this podcast chronologically but let's let's dive in there what how long have you been working with young people and how long have you been sort of in the sort of mental health space Um, So I started going into schools in 2008, which terrifyingly means that some of the young people I work with now weren't even born then. Yeah, that is terrifying. Yeah, totally terrifying. But it was because I was just sort of newly in recovery from an eating disorder at the time. Okay. And sort of hadn't worked for about a year. It just had been too too sick to, to work and was sort of finding my feet and trying to work out what I wanted to do with my life. And I'd always had this idea in the back of my head that I wanted to have a conversation in schools about mental health that was a bit more universally relevant than what I'd had and didn't focus so much on the extremes. And so I thought what I'll do is I'll go and I'll speak to some young people and I'll put together a really good lesson plan and then I'll give it to teachers and then I'll work out what I want to do with my life. (laughs) And then 14 years later, I'm still doing it. What age were you when you first started doing that? I would have been 27. Right. And did you feel that there was a really, a real gap in your education around? Is that what sort of fueled it? Yeah, I'm really lucky, I think, because I speak to other people my age who weren't told anything about mental health at all. Like Johnny Benjamin, I don't know if you, you're you aware of him. That name rings a bell, yeah. He's he's another mental health campaigner. He's about the same age as me. And he told me that he said literally the only thing that he knew about mental health at, at the time of leaving school was he'd watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, and that was it. Yeah, I mean, I'm 36 and I feel like... I feel like part of my education was kind of toughen up, mm. like the world's tough. Yeah. You know, I don't like, I don't feel like there was anyone that was like, are you all right? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It's There's a lot of kind of having to modify your own behaviour. I think particularly when you're a girl, you're always told to yeah. sort of shape yourself to, to how the world is. So I guess when you compare it to that, I was quite lucky, but we had... You know, those assemblies that were very trendy in the 90s where people would come in and share their story and it was always a really charismatic person with a really interesting story, but it wasn't relatable. You know, it it was, I was homeless because of my um, addiction issues or I was sectioned or I nearly died. And and so therefore, when it was happening to me, I didn't recognise it because... I thought it only happened to people who were like the people I'd seen in those assemblies, if you see what I mean. Right. Yes, I do know what you mean. And so what what were you like at school? Just incredibly swatty. Um, (laughs) And now I know that I had undiagnosed anxiety for a really long time. Right. And one of the ways that I cope with it is through overworking, which makes Mm -hmm. me really susceptible to burnout. So I have to kind of put in structures to, to ward against that. But back in the 90s when I was at school, everyone just thought I was an overachiever and it was great because I was, you know, reading texts around the books that we were studying and doing extra essays and just 
so would try and stay at school for as long as possible. I was in every club, every society, you know, just interested endlessly in mm. in everything. And my mum says she remembers going to parents' evenings and my teachers being like, how are you doing this? <laughs> like, how have you raised this child? Because my teachers thought it was wonderful that I was so interested in everything that they, they had to say. I wasn't particularly popular, as you can imagine, but I did enjoy school. <laughs> No, that's great. That's brilliant. And I suppose you said you had undiagnosed anxiety, but were you aware that you were sort of maybe, I, I'm sort of loath to use the word worrying because I think that sometimes like really undermines what having real anxiety is. Yeah. Were, were you aware that you were putting that pressure on yourself or was it just like, I'm going to do this because I... I think, yeah, I, there was one moment where I sort of questioned how normal I was and it was my parents went away and my grandparents came to look after me and my brothers for a week. And I remember my granddad saying to me, I've seen you deteriorate in terms of you started Monday, you had loads of energy and you're really enthusiastic. And he said, now I'm looking at you and it feels like you can barely stand kind of thing. You know, he said, you work so hard, but I've, I've watched it throughout the course of this week, take its toll on you. And that was the only time I think anyone noticed what I was doing. I'm a very in my head person. One of my colleagues at LBC sent me a voice note the other day asking me what I thought about a news story. And I sent a voice note back and it was about five minutes long. And, yeah. and my colleague was like, that's a lot of thoughts. And I said, yeah, that's what it's like in my brain. I'm just always thinking about stuff all the time. You know, you only ever inhabit your head, don't you? And so you don't know what it's like for other people. You don't realise that other people aren't carrying that burden. No, absolutely. And, and you know, as someone that has certainly bouts of anxiety and lives with sort of an underlying level of it. I can't really imagine what it's like to not feel anxious right. some of the time or to not, like my wife will say to me when everything's sort of going well, she'll say to me, don't start searching for it. Don't start searching for that thing to worry about. And, and it's exactly what I do. I really sort of begin to look. I'm like, there must be something. Yeah. There must be something. And yeah, it, it, as you say, there's no way of knowing what it's like outside of that brain. As I had a conversation with my brother once. So my my uncle, when I got married, my uncle told me that he was going to be on holiday the week that I got married. So I was like, oh, don't worry about it. And then I didn't send him an invitation because I thought he was away. And then yeah. it turned out, it transpired, after I got married, I found this out, it transpired that he'd moved his holiday so that he could come to the wedding, but had never got an invite. And so I, I spoke to him about it at, at like a family gathering. And I said, I didn't know, I didn't know. And he said, it's, it's fine. Please don't worry, it's fine. And then afterwards, I spoke to my brother and I said, I feel so bad about this. And my brother said, well, Uncle Andrew said, don't worry about it. So if I were you, I would just not worry about it. And I remember thinking, wow, is that how other people operate? They just go, well, I've been told not to worry. So I just shan't. Yeah, I think it's how some people operate, but not you or I. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, definitely not. And obviously, you know, this is a, a, a podcast about coming out and being out and, and working out who you are in the world. Did you have any inkling at that time that maybe it, none, none of your anxiety was linked to your identity, but were you aware at all at that time that you were different to the majority of people in your year? Yeah, I remember actually watching a, an Eddie Izzard DVD when I was in my teens where she talks about being a lid thinker where you're not in the box, but you're not totally out the box either. Right. And I remember that resonating with me so much because I feel like a lid person. There are so many things that make me a tiny bit different, but I can still be part of the club if I want to. So, you know, I'm, I'm of mixed ethnic heritage, but most people think I'm white when they meet me. I come from a working class background, but I'm now a, a writer and, and speaker, which is a very middle class job. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a, an ongoing mental illness, which technically means I'm disabled, but I can choose to hide it if I want to. And I'm bisexual, but I'm married to a man. So for, for all of these reasons, I feel like this kind of lid person where, and I've always felt a little bit sort of like I'm on the periphery looking in. Um, and then it was only when somebody said to me, oh, you're not 
you're thinking about it in the wrong way. Where you're a bridge between worlds because being <sighs> you gives you access to all of these different perspectives and communities. That's a great way of looking at it. It was such a good way of looking at it. Yeah, and completely yeah. changed. I thought, oh, maybe I don't have to find my tribe. Maybe my job is to help the tribes come together. If you see what I mean. And maybe you're in both tribes, and that's fine as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot because I remember the first time I realized I was attracted to women, I was about nine. I was definitely still in primary school. And there was this copy of Smash Hits, which loads of gay and bisexual women my age remember. It had Danny Minogue on the front and she was wearing um, dungarees. Sure. And, yeah, Go yeah, on. Yeah. I'm in. <laughs> and, she, and I just remember looking at it for ages because she just looked so incredible and and feeling something that was different. Because because I remember around the same time I had a copy of a Michael Jackson album cover on my wall, and I just used to sit and look at his eyebrows for hours and hours and hours, thinking he has the most amazing eyebrows. And I remember distinctly feeling, no, this is different from Michael Jackson's eyebrows, this feeling that you're feeling. This isn't just, oh, it's pretty to look at. This is something else. And then I I said to a family member, oh, I think the words I used was, I think I might be a bit funny because uh, I'm really obsessed with this picture of, of Danny Minogue. And then my family member just going, don't be so silly. And, you know, that that was the end of the conversation. And I've since spoken about that online and had people say to me, you know, if it had been Kylie, you would be a full gay now. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it had been Kylie, you'd be a gay guy now. <laughs> yeah, so it would have been, yeah. been an even bigger journey. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, how those, like, I wonder what being told that that was silly d- did to, to, to nine-year-old you. I think the whole idea of bisexuality being silly is something that's followed me my whole life. Yeah. I think with bisexual men, people assume that they're gay and in denial. And with yes. bisexual women, people assume that we are straight but attention-seeking. Yeah. And that's something I internalised as well, I think. Sure. And I think something that I have been guilty of myself is 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 saying, oh, well, of course I was bisexual for a bit. Mm. And, and it being a stepping stone to coming out as a lesbian, which I, you know, I now know as a as a grown-up lesbian, that that's, it totally invalidates people's experiences. And I would certainly not want to do that. But it was definitely something that I said in a way to, to, to try on how people would relate to me and whether it meant that I would lose all my friends. Yeah, And it was something that, you know, something I'm not proud of, but something that I did in a desperate situation where I didn't know what else to do. And I think that's a really important thing. It's certainly something that we've received quite a lot of. I wanted to talk to you about a lot of things, but it's definitely this was part of what I wanted to talk to you about because I think that making sure that the B is visible mm. in LGBT plus is is really, really important that, you know, as a lesbian, I don't accidentally brush over that because I think that that happens quite a lot in our in our community. And I think you're absolutely right. Those two ways of viewing bisexual men and bisexual women can be really harmful for everyone and actually harmful for the whole community. Yeah. People have got in touch. It's actually probably the email that I receive the most would be from a woman who is mid to late thirties saying, I've always known I'm bisexual. I'm married. I don't want to leave my husband, but I really love your podcast. And I've never done anything about my bisexuality. Yeah. But you know, it's so great to, to be able to share your story because I think that's something that's actually not discussed very much because it feels like once you get married, it's like, well, that's who you've got. Yeah. So you're this thing now. I know. Or once you've, you know, not necessarily married, but like settled down or you're with someone if you've got a long-term partner. Something that I've started doing is I was talking to young LGBTQ people and they were saying, mm-hmm. we only ever get discussed in the context of sex education. And there's already an issue with the community being hypersexualized, And what we would really love is for representation, but more in a kind of, oh, and by the way, they're also, you know, gay or, or trans or whatever, but they were, they're a scientist or yes. a politician or, or whatever yes. it is. So something that I have started doing recently in my talks is just dropping it in that I'm bisexual, but that's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm here to talk to you about. I'm here to talk to you about mental health. But by the way, here I am existing. Should you need to see that kind of thing? Yes, and, absolutely. Um, oh my God, that must be so <laughs> liberating for so many young people. If you had come to my school and said that, I would have been like, 
oh my god she exists <laughs> fucking brilliant thank god there's someone that's a bit like me yeah i, I do think that it is appreciated i've, I've had yeah, some, some good feed, feedback on that but i did it at a, a teaching conference once and where we were staying overnight and the, the next day i came down to breakfast and one of uh, these teachers came up to me and went well after you went to bed last night you were quite the topic of conversation and i went okay <laughs> why and she said because you mentioned in your talk that you're bisexual but we also noticed that you're wearing a wedding ring <laughs> she just looked at me like and I was like yeah yeah there's no inherent contradiction and then I went to tell her more and then I thought no actually I don't owe you this ex yeah, you. exactly it's like if I'd have married a woman I wouldn't have become gay that day the mm -hmm. fact that I married a man doesn't mean I became straight that day it's about more than the relationship you are in or your sex life like it's, it's so much bigger than that yeah absolutely and t talking to young people do you see a real sort of disparity between sort of what young people are saying to you or what they're hearing from an adult like you talking to them about sort of their existence and validating their existence and what they might be getting from other adults in their life does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total yeah. sense. Okay. It makes okay. total sense. My agenda is very much set by young people, mm -hmm. I've realised. Having one foot in education and one foot in media is a really interesting experience. So but my experience in schools, of course, homophobia still exists in schools and a lot of stereotypes around what certain groups of people are like exist. But the big thing was gender questioning, non-binary and transgender young people. And certainly, I always felt this massive responsibility to be an ally in that regard. And I still feel like this is an area where young people have such a clear understanding of it. And then their parents are so scared of it. It's one of those situations where you're thinking, well, actually, your elders should know more about this stuff, but they really don't in this instance. And I think that, I mean, I've said this before, that understanding gender and its role in society in the way that trans and non-binary people do is really liberating for everyone. Like it's been liberating for me as a, a giant, great big lady. Um, it's, you know, <laughs> understanding that I don't have to be small and feminine in order to qualify as a woman has been, you know, really, yes, really liberating yes. for me. Yeah, absolutely. And owning language. I mean, people that listen to this podcast remember that at the beginning of this podcast, in the first two series, I used to always say, oh, I refer to, my, I, I prefer to refer to myself as a gay woman rather than a lesbian. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm you know, in my late thirties now. And it's only now that I feel sort of almost confident enough to be like, oh no, I can use the word lesbian. I can yeah. use, and there's actually some ownership there. And, and I think, you know, owning those words, wh whatever the words are that are about your identity, it's good for everyone to, if you feel comfortable saying that, if you feel comfortable being yourself unapologetically, people around you will go, oh, well, they seem happy. And they oh, seem, yeah. That is the thing. Now I feel quite confident using the terms that they've given me to use for them because they seem so, so comfortable with it. You know, I think that that's part of the fear sometimes that people worry about pussyfooting around what words to use. Yeah. Whereas if someone's got like a great ownership of it, like you're calling yourself a big lady, <laughs> you know, I feel like that as well though, because I'm definitely a cis woman, but you know, I like wearing suits. I like, you know, being quite androgynous in how I dress. And I'm not petite, mm. but yeah, you're so right. It, it, it is good for everyone. Interesting story that I thought that you would appreciate is I went back into my old school. And where was that? Bishop Stortford. Okay, sure. In sure, Hertfordshire, sure. yeah. Yeah. Which is a town I always describe as, it's a bit up itself. It's It's got right, okay. ideas above its station, you know. And for people that live outside of the UK, what does it look like? It's one of these, it's a market town, so it's got this teeny tiny little centre and an infrastructure that doesn't really support how massive it is because it's it's very close to Stansted Airport. So it's become a sort of satellite town for all the people who who work at, at Stansted Airport. It is technically in Hertfordshire, but its its energy is Essex. Um, so it's, <laughs> uh, you know... People make a lot of effort with their appearance. People are very aware that they're being watched. There's a lot of, you know, if you've got money, you wear it or you drive it type. Yeah, 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 stuff. yeah, yeah. They wouldn't be shy about a personalised number plate. 
absolutely not. It's rammed personalised number plates. But also, and my dad um, has a personalised number plate. So there's no judgment <laughs> happening there. If you see Ross in Portsmouth, that's him. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but then it also thinks it's better than Essex as well. Like it's so it's so it's got those kind of dual things going on. So I went to a, an all girls school in Bishop Stortford, and I went back there about it must have been about ten years ago now. And there was a girl that was in sixth form at the time called Ellen Jones, who is now like a prolific LGBTQ campaigner. She has been out since she was about 11, like some some kind of ridiculously young age, got horrifically bullied, but just really kind of pioneering. She's... And she knows everybody in the community. She's like the, the queen mum of, of gays, <laughs> like, despite being really young. So my my talk apparently had a really profound impact on her. And then we stayed in touch. Then she moved to London. And then in, in 2017, when I wrote my book, A Beginner's Guide to Being Mental, I, I talk about sexuality in it. And still, I think I had like quite a lot of internalised biphobia at the time. And I have this big thing about not wanting to be seen to centre myself when I'm aware that there is so much kind of oppression that is still faced by by other people in the community. So I sort of wrote in this book, you know, like, oh, I have had relationships with women, but not as many as the relationships I've had with men. So I don't know if it if that makes me bisexual. You know, I just don't put a label on it. And then Ellen came to me and went, you know, like that May Martin bit of stand up where they're like, I had this auntie that went, you're gay, <laughs> right? Huh. Ellen kind of went to me, you're gay, <laughs> right? You, you need to kind of own this and, and step up. So it was almost like the role reversal of I'd helped her back when she was at school. And now she was helping me with my coming out thing. And then I spoke to her recently. She said, it's so funny that now she said, I don't think anyone would read you as straight now because she said, you're so much more comfortable. You're not trying to be smaller. You're not trying to be feminine. You're just being you. And that's definitely linked to being more comfortable with owning that label of bisexual as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's just something about when you, you know, it doesn't need to be like necessarily to everyone. It can just be to a few people in your life or even just to yourself. But as soon as you sort of go, oh yeah, that is who I am. She shoulders just come down by two inches, don't they? It's yeah. just like, oh, it's like a just a release, like some air that's been trapped in your lungs for like 15 years goes, oh, okay, fine, that's who I am. I want to talk a little bit about your new book, Toxic. How much of that is influenced by your, your time at school? I, it, so it is set in 2019. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff that the, the main character goes through is very different in terms of, you know, social media is a, a big yep. part, part of the story, yep. for example. But in terms of the foundational things about who she is, you know, being being of mixed heritage, but not knowing your dad, being raised by a single white mum in a town that's a bit up itself, very much we have a lot in common. So th- there's a lot of me in, in Luella. Somebody asked me if there was any queer representation in the book recently. And Luella's incredibly woke, as I think I would be if I was a teenager now, yeah. and as most of the teenage girls that I meet are. So she talks a lot about, you know, there's there's a, a trans boy at her school and things like that. But she is bisexual. She just hasn't worked it out yet. <laughs> and some people right. who have read it have gone, yeah, yeah, she so she so is because it, it. You just know don't you? Right. Yes. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. Yeah. If you know, you can read it. You can read it in people. (laughs) Absolutely. I was having a conversation with my wife the other day where she said to me, you've kind of got a gay face. And I was like, what do you mean? She was like, queer people will know you're gay. You've just kind of got a gay face. And I was like, oh, I mean, I don't dislike that. But okay, I got a gay face. That's okay. If you know, you know, you got a gay face. I was like, okay, okay. When did you come out? So officially, in terms of uh, describing myself as bisexual, yeah, twenty eighteen, very recently. Right. So it's quite, yeah, it's quite, and, and that obviously comes quite a long time after your experiences with eating disorders. And if if you don't want to answer this, that's totally fine, and we'll just cut this bit. But I, I was just interested to because I've spoken to people before, and this actually isn't in a, a public forum, but to friends who have have suffered with eating disorders their identities were actually something that was really part of it because it was about control. Mm. Was there a link to your identity with your eating disorder? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it does. And is that something you're happy to talk about? Yes. Uh, so uh, now I recognize my eating disorder was in mental health circles. We talk about primaries and secondaries. Right. Okay. So everybody's got their kind of root issue. So th- the example would be if you have depression and you drink a lot, it could be that because alcohol is a depressant, the alcohol is causing the depression, or it could be that you're drinking to self-medicate for the depression. Right. But you have to work out what your primary is to know what to tackle first. Sure. And so if that was the scenario, if you were using booze as sort of a, 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 a form of medication, for want of a better word, the booze would be your secondary. Right. And there'd be another route to you. Is that right? I yeah. just want to make sure I'm getting this right. Yeah. Okay. Wicked. So- Anxiety is my primary, definitely. Yes. And I think my eating disorder was a coping strategy in many ways for the anxiety that I felt. But it was also because I kept being told in my sort of late teens, early 20s, your body's letting your face down. And it's that kind of being, it's that being between worlds thing again. That's horrible. I mean, do you mean from like, actual people or like the media? Or- <laughs> no, I mean from actual people. And this is where, it, it, you know, this coincides with a period of my life where I had some interest from modelling agencies, but also when straight men became a feature in my life. Because bearing in mind, I've been to an all-girls school. So the only straight men I knew were my brothers <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, yeah, at, sure, that, okay. at that point. And it was, oh, you know, you're almost there. So I wasn't completely gender non-conforming, even though I'm big, you know, and I take up space. It was like, oh, if you were just a bit smaller, you'd be perfect kind of thing. It was always the implication was you need to work harder and then your life will get better. And I believe that. I thought all this distress that I'm feeling, if I just look right, then it will disappear. And so many people believe that still, I think. Yeah, that's really, I mean, totally unsurprising of the time that we were living through then. I imagine that messages from the media were saying something quite similar yeah. to women of, of sort of our, around our age. It was so, I mean, you just think about like Heat magazine and like the circle of shame oh, yeah. and all that stuff that like, I mean, we must be sort of a similar age that we grew up around being like, oh my God, someone's like leaning over and it would like circle like their skin folding over. I know. Like the shame. But it was just so normal. It was so normal for girls in my school I've never had an eating disorder, but I know that there was times when I had slightly disordered eating Mm. where I wanted to be little. Yeah. I wanted to be small. I was told once that I had really big shoulders, (laughs) which I don't, but I was told that. And it, it was a thing for like, I would say six years of my life. It made me think, I thought about it every time I got dressed, like Mm. don't show your shoulders off because they're like muscly. And that's not what people want to see. And it's, I say this to the young women that I work with now, I'm like, you have to believe me. When I went to school, big lips were not a thing, hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> White yeah. women couldn't get them, therefore they weren't a, a beauty paradigm. Um, you know, being strong, being muscular, which is very much my natural body type, was not considered attractive. Or like having a booty. Having, having a bit bu- Yeah, having a bum. Like, yeah. it was not, it was, it was all about Kylie in those gold hot pants. It was. There was only one way to be. And glamour models were very much kind of dominating. Yes, yes, yes. And so I said, you know, what this experience of being me has taught me is if you're just yourself, eventually you will come into fashion because because fashions change. Yeah. Don't concern yourself with that. Just do you. Because you can't win as a woman either. Like, you you know, however you look, society will find a way to judge you. So don't try and win that game. Just do you. Or they'll say... She's trying too hard. Yeah, exactly. It's embarrassing how hard she's trying. It's right. like, everyone's trying. <laughs> yeah. It just depends who they've decided to hate today. You know, with so much of your work going into schools and speaking to young people, how's the pendulum going for like it being, it, people being liberated and feeling excited? I spoke to Owen Jones, the podcast, and we were talking about the fact that we feel like there was like this brief period where it felt a lot better for queer people. Mm. Where we were like, we can get married, we can have kids. And now the media's and people and TERFs are sort of, you know, if they're starting with trans people, they don't, don't, don't think it would just be trans people they go after. It would be the whole community. Totally. And um, like, how's that with young people, do you feel like? Do they feel liberated or does it feel quite frightening still? 
So I, I think it must be a terrifying time to be a young queer person because what I think transphobia has done is it's provided a little kind of chink in the armour through which all of the hatred because where, where there's transphobia, there is homophobia and misogyny normally as well. Of, of course, yeah, and, absolutely. And it's enabled. And, and I've realised this, that I was in such a lefty silo. I mean, I worked in, in education and I was writing for The Guardian, um, you, you know, and then I got the, the job on LBC, which I'm endlessly grateful for and I love it. But it definitely gave me a peek beyond. I mean, you must have to deal with some absolute nightmares. Like some people must ring in and you must want to say fuck off. Yes, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, obviously you don't you're very good at your job you're very professional but sometimes you must want to say oh get fucked yeah. it would be great if maybe for comic relief or something one year there's, there's a day where we're allowed to say just fuck off yeah um, but actually so when I first started doing uh, kind of queer events I was talking to to other people who were on panels and stuff I remember talking to Juno Dawson and uh-huh. um, her saying to me you know, there's there's still a lot of biphobia. And and me looking at her going, come on, you're a trans woman and you're a high profile trans woman. Don't worry about me. You know, I'll, I'll be mm-hmm. fine. And and then on LBC, I did it was 50 years of pride. Mm-hmm. And, and I decided to do an hour of how far have we come? How far have we still got to go? If, yeah. if you are an LGBTQ person, how are you feeling? And then for literally about five minutes at the beginning of the hour, I spoke about my own experience because that very often inspires callers, you know, if, Absolutely. if you share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you share, sure. Literally, I've never known anything like it. Of People screaming at me on social media, you know, stop forcing it down our throats. We don't care. People were messaging me to tell me how much they didn't care about my sexuality. And I was like, well, it really seems like you care because you've taken time out of your day. Yeah. I was called a narcissist. I was called an attention seeker. Um, And I suddenly got what Juno Dawson had been talking about. Mm. I was like, oh, okay. This is what you meant. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's definitely got worse, I think, because like with all of the isms, you know, racism, misogyny has been enabled by recent political shifts. And therefore, as much as within the, if you're just talking to young people, they tend to be quite progressive and liberal. They've only got to look at the world. And I think it would be really scary. Yeah, it must be. It really must be. I mean, you work in media. You're a bright woman. You've written books. What do we do? Um, I'm coming to you for the answer. Yeah. You don't have to have one. I'm like, mm, I have written a mm. book, but this might be beyond my capabilities. <laughs> so people always talk about, you know, it used to be political correctness and, and then it, it it's now become woke um, and it's yeah. used as this pejorative thing and people talk about it as though it's an impingement on people's freedom of speech. But from my point of view, I feel like we have to have a thing where we say this is what as as a society we find acceptable and no you can't say that in polite company and yes you will be picked up on it and yeah it doesn't you know not all opinions are equal if you're if you are ignorant then your opinion is not worth the same as somebody who is not and i think we've sort of lost that that it, people were so concerned with what they weren't allowed to say that it's enabled all this really, really hateful rhetoric to become mainstream. Um, so I think we, we kind of need to reclaim reclaim yeah. the, the woke ag- agenda. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that so often people will say, oh, you know, I'm allowed to say that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, physically you can say whatever you, you yeah. know, you can say words, but don't think that there's not a consequence. That's the thing. Even now, if I think of the things that people would shout at me when I was on stage, when I was a new stand-up, when I came out, like I think if it happened now, it would get such a different response. I think that the audience, but then there'd probably be audiences at my shows. So, you know, they're going to be, uh, but, but, you know, I even had some homophobic heckling in my last tour. Wow. You're like, this is my own show. This is insane. Why the fuck have you come? Yeah. Who did they think they were going to see? <laughs> who the fuck knows? It's like, um, I saw a review of Miriam Margulies autobiography on Amazon and it said that 
there was too much about her being a lesbian and Jewish. And I was like, whose book did you think you were buying? (laughs) Don't buy a book by a lesbian Jew if that's not what you want to read about. It doesn't surprise me, but it makes me furious Mm. that you spoke briefly on your own show about your experience. And I feel like, you know, if, if, if a straight man had said, well, this is how I feel about being a dad. Even people that weren't dads would be like, yeah, I guess he needs to speak about being a dad. You know, people yeah. would find a way to, Not be, to even accept that. it. They would be applauding him, being like, how yeah, do you like, find the time to dad. be an amazing parent <laughs> and have an LBC show? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. Yeah, it makes me, it makes me livid, actually. It makes me really livid. So you, you came out in 2018. Were you already married by this point? Yeah. You were. And so it was something that you were sort of working out about yourself in 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 your marriage. Yeah. And I'd been honest with my husband. Like he he knew that I was also attracted to women and, and loves that we can have discussions about hot women. Um, <laughs> and that I, under, sure. I understand the difference between a, a woman that straight women think should be hot and women who are actually hot. He loves that. Um, so, we, you know, we have those conversations. But I do remember there was, because he struggles with um, depression, which is something that he's spoken openly about, particularly in relation to the seasons. He has um, seasonal affective disorder. Right, sure, yeah. Um, And he went for some counselling and the counsellor said to him, do you think that we should talk about your wife being bisexual? And that was the first time I'd never described myself that way. That was the first time anyone had ever applied that label to me. I think he just mentioned that I'd had relationships with women before I married him. And I said, what did you say? And he was like, well, it doesn't, it's not a reason for my mental health issues. It doesn't bother me. Like, so I said, no, we don't need to talk about that. But I thought, isn't that interesting that people thought he would need to be counseled? Yeah. Seasonally, yes, it, it's it's something that comes up seasonally. Like I only fancy women in the winter, issue. Susie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but but that's such a. It's that feels like really root one of the therapist, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, like oh, yeah. it's a jealousy thing. It's a yeah, wow. And so, how long was it after he said that to you that you thought? Actually, this word might belong to me. I I was really pleased with how casual he was about it. He was like, "Mm." Mm. and you know what? That was mostly the response I got from people. They were like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) I can see that about you. Or yeah, we knew sort of of thing. Right, yeah. Um, I remember... So my parents, uh, my mum's remarried now to a wonderful, wonderful man. And they're both very liberal, left-leaning just brilliant people and my coming out to them consisted of we were having a conversation over a glass of wine and we were talking about the first person that we ever really loved ever sort of fell in love with and I was talking about someone a girl that I met at uni and my stepdad said no no not love like a friend love love we're talking about and I went yeah and he just went oh right okay (laughs) <laughs> that was it. It's really anticlimactic. But that's lovely. Yeah. Like I hope that <laughs> that that feels like something that we sh- that 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 society should strive for. Yeah. For everyone to be like your stepdad. Yes. Go, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that adds up. But not the thing that I was trying to get across that made people really angry that time I spoke on LBC was mm-hmm. there's a difference between going, "Oh, okay." And saying, I don't care. I think like a lot of progressive people feel like it's a good response when someone comes out to you say to say, I don't care about that. You're still the same to me. But what you're doing is you're like dismissing everything that person has been through to get to a point where they can tell you about who they are. Yeah. And so it comes across as, it's like when people say, I don't see color. And you're like, well, of course you do, you dick. Yeah. Like, you know, and don't dismiss no, that totally. person. And, and, and that was something when I was 18, that was the thing to say. Yeah, yeah. We all said it. We were like, yeah, I'm really, I mean, we didn't have the word woke, but we were like, yeah, I'm really like cultured. Yeah. And understanding. But yeah, we've, yeah, I think that it's someone saying, I don't care is, is then you going, oh, but, I, but it's big for me. So you should care. Yeah. It's a big thing for me. So I think it's far better to say, oh, right, <laughs> like, like my okay, stepdad cool. did. Okay. Yeah. Good or, for you. Or thank you for telling me, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I tell you what I hate. It's a real pet hate of mine when, when people say they tell someone and they say, yeah, I always knew that. And you're like, no, don't take this away. <laughs> yeah. You know, there might have been like a train ride or a sleepless night where they thought about how this would go. And you saying, oh, I always knew, totally dismisses the fact that that, that that it was hard for them to do it. I totally was guilty of that. So one of the producers at LBC, the first time we went out socially, she sat down with me and she said, um, can I tell you something? And I was like, sure. And she said, um, <laughs> I, I'm bisexual. And I, because I knew, I did know. So, so I kind of went, yeah. <laughs> like that and she went that that's it and I went and I sort of had to check myself and and say uh, you know say that thing of going thank you for telling me it's it's great mm. that you felt that you could you could tell me about that but my first default response was to say well yeah I knew that obviously you are you can just tell it's the vibe you're giving off like you know <laughs> but it is so diminishing isn't it yeah it is but that's okay I think like it's okay like I've definitely got it wrong I'm sure that I would have said to a very camp male friend of mine at some point or another, yeah, of course you're gay. I knew that you were gay. But I've probably got a mate listening to this right now going, well, you fucking did that to me. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I know that I'd be guilty of it as well. Now, I'm so pleased that you had the time to come on the show because I feel like there are thousands of women that listen to this show that are going to resonate so much with your story and so much with you sort of coming to a place of ownership of the different labels that you now use for yourself. The final question that I ask everyone that comes on the show is is sort of an advice to your younger self, but I'm thinking of your younger self being about five or six years ago. Okay. <laughs> um, sort of the, the version of Natasha that was still not using that word about herself. And maybe there's someone that's listening that feels very similarly now. And, you know, this podcast is never about telling people to come out. I think that, you know, sometimes it's not safe and sometimes it's not the right thing to do. But even just coming out to yourself, if you could reach out to someone that's having similar feelings to you in 2018, what would you say? I think I would say that if you feel safe to do so and if it's important to you to embrace a label, and it's not for everyone, but for me it really was, that will be a conduit to embracing so many other things about yourself. It's like once you are no longer trying to hide this part of yourself or trying to diminish this part of yourself. It somehow makes it okay to be authentic in other areas of your life too. And it's the most incredibly freeing experience. And working in education, I was really scared because bisexual people in particular are hypersexualized. I thought people would think that I wasn't okay to be around kids. That that was my biggest fear. And I'm sure there are some people who do think that. But for every one of them, I know that there's been 10 teenagers who have seen me and heard me speak and think that it's okay to be themselves now. And that's worth far, far more. So I couldn't be happier that I made that decision. Oh, Natasha, honestly, if you had come to my school and been authentically yourself... My mental health in my late teens and early 20s would have been so much improved. (laughs) Just the thank God you're doing that work. I don't even really believe in God, but that's a different podcast. (laughs) But thank goodness that you're you're doing that work and that you're being an authentic version of yourself because I bet there are hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of of kids that, even, even if they're not part of our community, but just feel a bit more comfortable being exactly who they are because they listen to you speak. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That was the brilliant Natasha Devon. I hope that you loved it. I did look up Natasha on the socials. She's doing really important work for the community and for rights of lots of people. She's great to listen to. She's so interesting. She's so engaging. She's so informative. Follow her. Be across what she does. Okay. The email again. Hello at suzyruffle.com. Get in touch with me. But I will see you. Well, I won't see you, will I? But I'll speak to you next week. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.